Years back, I was giving a retreat in Laguna Beach. This is after several years of retreats there. And at the end of the day, one of the students came up and said, you know what, I think I finally understand what you're trying to say. And she repeated what I've been trying to say. And said, yeah, that's right. And I've been saying this for five years. And she said, I only heard it today. And I thought about it for a while, and I realized why. She had been introduced to Buddhism from another tradition. And then she was trying to combine what she had learned from the other tradition with what I was saying, and assuming that if I didn't say what she had learned from the other tradition, I just wasn't articulate. So she would translate it back into what she had already learned. Which explains one of the um, approaches that the Buddha would often take when teaching. Before telling people what right view was, he would give them a long list of wrong views. You see this in the first sutta in the Dikanagaya, the second sutta in the Dikanagaya, the first and second suttas in the Majjhima as well. And so when I originally planned the reading materials for this afternoon, I thought I would take that same approach. But then after last night's talk, I realized, got to back up. Let's start with right view. <laughs> and then we go back and to look at what's wrong view and why it's wrong in the context of right view. So look on page six, very bottom of the page. Right view, I tell you, is of two sorts. There is right view with effluence. The word effluence here means that things that come flowing out of the mind that lead to more and more becoming. And we'll get into the concept of becoming in just a second. Siding with merit, resulting in acquisitions of becoming. There's right view that is noble, without effluence, transcendent, a factor of the path. So what it's basically saying here, there are two levels of right view. One is the level of right view that when you follow it will lead to rebirth in good states of becoming. And then there is the right view that will take you beyond becoming. Those are the two kinds of right view that we're going to be dealing with. Now, last night we heard the mention the difference between absolute and relative truths. The Buddha never used those terms and never talked about, say, there being an absolute truth where there are no beings and a relative truth where there are beings. It was more, when you adopt a particular kind of view, what kind of actions will lead it to you, lead you, lead it to, you to do? And the right view with affluence leads you to perform actions that will be skillful, leading to good states of rebirth. The other higher level of right view, the transcendent right view, actually gets you out. Okay, so what is right view with affluence? Siding with merit, resulting in acquisitions. There is what is given, what is offered, what is sacrificed. Okay, now this sounds pretty obvious. People give things all the time. But you have to realize that in the context of India at that time, the issue of giving was hotly debated. Um, this was largely because Brahmins for many, many centuries have been saying, gifts are worthwhile, especially when you give them to Brahmins. <laughs> and you can imagine after a couple of millennia of this, people getting kind of tired. And so there were people who came up and said, no, giving has no value at all. And the reasons they gave were two. One was the, the idea that Whatever you do is totally determined by something from the past, either from an outside force, a god, or just your own past actions. Therefore, when you choose to give, you're not really choosing. You don't have any choice in the matter. So there's no virtue in whether you give or don't give. It's something that's been forced on you. So that was one 
belief about what, why, why they were saying there is nothing given. Um, the other is that the person receiving it at the end of life dies. And so what you give to people who are going to die doesn't really matter. It doesn't make any difference. I mean, I mean dying, I mean, here, being me, totally wiped out. There's nothing left over. So when the Buddha is saying there is what is given, what is sacrificed, he means two things. One, you do have the choice when you're making a gift. And secondly, the people to whom you give will be continuing to have some sort of life after death. And so it's worthwhile helping them along. So those are the implications of that statement right there. Okay. The, the fruits and results of good and bad actions, again, your actions do have results. You're not writing in water. That when you do something with, uh, with skillful intentions, it will lead to good results. You do something with unskillful intentions, it will lead to unpleasant results. There is this world and the next world, basically saying there is life after death. There is father and mother. Again, the idea of the being that you should have gratitude to your parents because they had the choice to give birth to you. They had the choice to raise you. They chose to do it. They went, they went through a lot of difficulties in order to do that. There are spon spontaneously born beings. Okay, We're talking last night about devas and, and hell beings. These are spontaneous, not in the sense that they come out of nothing, but they don't have parents. If you're going to appear in, in heaven, you just bump, you're there. If you're going to appear in hell, you don't have to wait. You, there's no gestation period. Um, they don't have any parents. You just, if you're in hell, you, you immediately you suffer. If you're in heaven, you immediately have experience pleasure. And there are contemplatives and Brahmins who, faring rightly and practicing rightly, proclaim this world and the next world, having directly known and re realized it for themselves. In other words, these are not just theories. There are people who really know this. Okay. Now for you, this is right view. As I said last night, right view is not right knowledge. It's a working hypothesis you take on. If you ad adopt this working hypothesis, you will tend to act in skillful ways. Because you think about, if I act in unskillful ways and there, are, there is a life after death that's shaped by my actions, it's going to be shaping it in, a, in an unskillful way. I don't want to do that. So it makes you more careful to act in skillful ways. And then there's the right view that is noble. It says, the discernment, the faculty of discernment, the strength of discernment, the analysis of qualities as a factor of awakening, the path factor of right view. Now, this is, these are making references to the five faculties, the five strengths, the seven factors of awakening, the eightfold path, the factor of discernment in all of those explanations of the path, which is basically seeing things in terms of the Four Noble Truths. So we'll get to that f further down. But first, I'd like to focus on mundane right view. Do you have any questions about that statement of mundane right view or the principles behind it? Yes? I just have a question about the relativity. It seems like sometimes it's hard from a Western point of view to look at getting beyond as not ending up with the perspective that in the end ethics are relative or that karma is relative. And I hear that a lot in American Buddhism. From an enlightened point of view, their, their, the ethics are simply a perspective? Is, is that what, can you clarify that? Do I get hung up on that? From the Buddhist point of view, you, you follow his teachings, you're not going to do anything unskillful. If you say, oh, it's all relative to conditions. I mean, this is why we have teachers having sex with students, you know. It's relative. Like that old joke about you know, the relative and the absolute and the absolute and the relative. The absolute and the relative is the teacher having sex with your, with your niece, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the absolute and the relative is your uncle getting into your liquor cabinet. 
when you see ethics as relative to, just, okay, you can break the precepts as long as you're doing it with compassionate motives. You can justify anything. But if you say, look, any stealing, any, any killing, any lying is going to be unskillful, then it sets, sets the bar a little bit higher. And so when you run up against the precept, you realize, mm, I really don't want to do that. That challenges you. Are the ethics still rel- not relative? But are they still useful and/or necessary at that higher? Well, they say that the stream matter has gone beyond grasping at habits and practices, and that doesn't mean that the stream matter has stopped practicing virtue. Actually, it means it's that they're not identifying themselves. My identities are not no longer shaped around being a virtue. That's being virtuous, but the virtue is basically there in their behavior. They don't break the five precepts intentionally. Yes. Um, I have a question about the giving, um, what's offered and what's given. Is it in regards to giving to Sangha or just giving? Any, any generous gift is good. There was a case where King Basenity came to see the Buddha and said, where should a gift be given? And this was after you know, hearing the Brahmins say, give to Brahmins, and the Jains saying, give to Jains. You may have been expecting the Buddha to say, give to Buddhists. He didn't say that. He said, give where you feel inspired where you feel the gift would be well used. So anywhere you feel inspired to give. He said there's even you know, throwing away some, some garbage for the crows to eat, you still gain merit. So all acts of generosity are, are meritorious. And then King Bhattisanity said, when a gift is given, where is it given so that it gives great fruit? And the Buddha said, well, that's a different question. And then they said you give, try to give to people who are free of passion, aversion, and delusion or who are practicing to be free of passion, aversion, and delusion. That way you get the most results out of the gift. But in terms of the act of giving is always a generous generous gift. And I think this is important when, when he said give where you feel inspired. It's giving you the freedom of choice. In fact, that's one of the reasons, one of the ways in which the Buddha teaches the fact that we do have choice is you Give where you feel inspired. He's not trying to force you. It's up to you to decide. I think it's a good exercise to try to think back. When was the very first time when, when, as your child, you gave something because you just wanted to do it, rather than because it was a birthday present or a Christmas present or you're forced to do it? When, out of that generosity of your heart, you gave something? That was your first experience of freedom of choice. It's good to think about it. Yes. Bias appears to be an integral part of human nature. That being said, since biases directly affect views, how do we know whether our views are clarity or merely uh, a separate form of bias? Okay, that's by acting on them and then checking the results. And not only passing judgment on yourself, but finding people that you trust and trying to look for how they would judge the results of your actions. Okay. So a couple of passages follow on. A passage from Right View. Okay, this, Ananda comes to see 
the Buddha. And the Buddha says, I say categorically that bodily misconduct, verbal misconduct, and mental misconduct should not be done. This is one of the two places in the canon where the Buddha says this particular truth is categorical. In other words, true across the board. In other places, he defines bodily misconduct as killing, stealing, having illicit sex. Verbal misconduct as lying, harsh speech, divisive speech, idle chatter. Mental misconduct include inappropriate greed, ill will, and wrong views. So what you, hear, what you have here is not only a, a classification of different kinds of actions, but also a sense of should. This should be done, this should not be done. Mis, misconduct should not be done. Skillful conduct should be done. These are the kinds of truths that the Buddha said are categorical. We'll, say this, we'll see the same thing with the Four Noble Truths. The truths don't just sit there. They also imply a certain kind of duty that should be carried out in a particular way. And the Buddha gives the reasoning here. If you do engage in misconduct, you can fault yourself. Observant people on close examination can criticize you. Your bad reputation gets spread around. You die confused, and with the break of the body after death, you appear in a pain, plane of deprivation, a bad destination, a lower realm or hell. And then categorically, he says, good bodily conduct should be done for the reasons that you don't fault yourself. Observant people on close examination praise you. Your good reputation gets spread about. You die unconfused. With the break of the body after death, you appear in a good destination, a heavenly world. Okay, there are certain shoulds that come from that basic principle of mundane right view. These are the kinds of actions you should and should not do. And then he goes on to say in the following passage, okay, abandon what is unskillful, and it is possible to abandon what is unskillful. In other words, you have the choice. Just because you have old habits doesn't mean you're stuck in your old habits. You see that you're doing something unskillful, you can learn how to switch your habits. I was reading a, a book recently about the biome in your body and how there are certain bacteria in your gut that really like fatty foods, other bacteria like you know vegetables, um, other bacteria like um, Big Macs. <laughs> and the author was saying, he says, maybe we don't have any choice in our food, choice of food after all. Maybe, we're, maybe our bacteria are choosing the food for us. And well, maybe they have an influence, you know, they're pushing you in a particular direction, but you're still making the choice. You can decide no matter how much, you know, that Big Mac looks good, you realize it's going to all end up, you know, coating the insides of your, your blood vessels, which those germs don't know. But you know. And on the basis of that, you can say no. Just like <clears throat> you have influences in the, in the environment around you that would lead you to choose one thing or another, but you have the choice to say yes or no to those influences. Margaret? Yeah, and uh, um, it's my understanding that we're, I mean, we're conditioning our future. We've conditioned ourselves up to this point, and we have a choice to shape through, through how we condition Yeah. You can think of things coming from the past as kind of like raw material for your present experience. And then from that raw material, you create your present experience through the way you fabricate bodily fabrication, verbal, metal, here in the present moment. So you've got tendencies coming in from the past, but it's not predetermined. There's a passage where the Buddha basically says, if you believe that everything was predetermined by the past, and we'll get to this later on, there's no way to practice. So karma is not totally deterministic. It's more 
creating tendencies here in the present moment. Just like your gut bacteria create tendencies. But you have the choice to say yes or no. There's another hand someplace. Okay. In the back. Yes. So one of the messages of this last passage is it's possible to let go of habits. Right. Um, but uh, so many of us have addictions that are really ingrained habits. How do we begin to cultivate this kind of right view that's possible? Okay, well, I mean, just, just the fact that there are programs for people with addictions, and you have the choice to join the program or don't, not join the program, and once you've joined it, you have the choice to stick with it or not stick with it. That right there is showing some measure of, of choice. And then the extent to which you really want to get rid of the addiction. This is where I think the image of the committee of the mind is useful. There's some committee members who are on board and other committee members who say, no, let's go back. <laughs> And you've got to learn how to strengthen the strong committee, me- the good committee members. That requires that you think strategically. Um, I don't like the idea of the you know the uh, the higher power coming in and taking over, because that that gives you a point where okay, there's nothing I can do on my own. I just have to surrender myself to the higher power. What if the higher power is checked out for the day? You know? <laughs> like that Onion article that said God is bipolar. <laughs> if you believe, okay, there's, there's some elements in me that are skillful, I've got to learn how to find them and strengthen them. I had a student one time who's, whose problem was marijuana. And he called me up one, one night and he said, Tony John, I got this little bag of marijuana here. Can you convince me not to smoke it? And I said, what happened to the committee members who don't want you to smoke it? He said, I killed them. <laughs> and I said, at least one of them <laughs> dialed the phone. <laughs> and dialed 911 before he gave up. You know? <laughs> so you find those committee members and you say, how can I strengthen them? And one way I found useful is that you make up your mind, okay, tonight I am not going to give in, whatever the, the impulse is. And you stick with that and say, I don't know about later nights, but tonight I'm not going to give in. And then the next morning you think about how glad you are you didn't give in. So the next time you feel tempted, you say, no, tomorrow morning I'll feel really glad I didn't give in. And don't be afraid to pat yourself on the back like that. The other one is, of course, when they say, I mentioned it last night, they say, you know, you're going to give in, so why don't you just give in now and make it easy for the both of us now? <laughs> and you say, okay, five minutes down the line, we'll talk about this again, but for right now, I'm not going to give in. And you can just keep putting it off, putting it off, putting it off, and finally, you can come out stronger. So those are two techniques that are useful. So... So this passage is abandon what is unskillful. If it were not possible to say to abandon what is unskillful, I wouldn't say to you abandon what is unskillful. If this abandoning of what is unskillful were conducive to harm and pain, I wouldn't say to you abandon what is unskillful. But because it is 
conducive to benefit and pleasure, I say to you, abandon what is unskillful. And the same for what it, developing what is skillful in its place. So it's possible to do it. It's beneficial to do it. That's why the Buddha taught. That's an element of right view, an important element of right view there, that you have these choices. That's kind of built into the idea that right view actually would make a difference. The next passage is one of the few, the other case where the Buddha talks about categorical teachings. This is stress. This is the origination of stress. This is the cessation of stress. This is the path of practice leading to the cessation of stress. Why are they categorical? Because they're conducive to the goal, conducive to the drama, and basic to the holy life. They lead to disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to calm, to direct knowledge, to self-awakening, to unbinding. Okay, these. This is another one of those truths that's true across the board. When you're looking for where is the stress, the Buddha says, okay, he will point out to you where the stress is, and we'll get to this in a, in a minute. And it's always the case. It's always going to be clinging to the five aggregates, one of the five aggregates, or any combination. The origination of stress will always be one of the three forms of craving. The cessation of stress will always be the abandoning of that craving. And the path to the cessation will always be the Eightfold Path, in every case. So this is why this is called a categorical teaching. It's true across the board. The next passage on the faculty of discernment. You may remember under that earlier passage where the Buddha talked about the faculty of discernment as one of the definitions of transcendent right view. And again, here it is. Is discerning a down with discernment of rising, passing away, noble, penetrating, leading to the right ending of stress. He or she discerns as it has come to be. This is stress. This is the origination of stress. This is the cessation of stress. The path of practice leading to the cessation of stress. Okay, that's transcendent right view. Any questions on the general outline there? Yes. So, um, in, in case of something like anxiety, where's the claim? Okay, you're clinging to fabrications, you're clinging to perceptions. You have a perception that, okay, there's some danger out there that you have to be worried about, because that, that clinging right there would be the, the suffering. Yes? So the four noble truths are the methodology to address all mental constructs? If you want to get, if you want to put an end to suffering, yeah. And so you look at where, where in the way that I'm putting things together is causing suffering. It'll be in, in, in the definition of what the suffering is and also why is it happening. It's in the definition of the origination. And then how to attack that problem, you look in terms of the, the Eightfold Path to get rid of that craving. Yes. So again, uh, if, if, if you're feeling stressed, if you or you're suffering one way or another, you're always clinging to one of the aggregates. Right. Okay. And so let's look at this. This is the noble truth of stress. Birth is stressful, aging is stressful, death is stressful. <laughs> death is very stressful. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair are stressful. 
association with the unbeloved, separation from the loved, not getting what is wanted. Okay, all these things we know. And then it gets to the five clinging aggregates are stressful. I'd like to talk to about, about that for a bit before we go on. Okay, The aggregates are form. In this case, they'll be the form of your body, defined as your experience of the four elements, earth, water, wind, and fire. Feelings, the feeling aggregate, that's your feeling tones of pleasure, pain, neither pleasure nor pain. We're not talking here about feelings as emotions. The feelings as emotion would come under another aggregate. This is just a sense of, I feel pleasure, I feel pain, I feel, or pleasant feeling, or painful feeling, or one that's neutral. Then there's the perception aggregate. Perceptions are the labels you apply to things. You say orange, bottle, light, ceiling. The labels you put on things. So that you can identify them. And it's basically the mind's way of talking to itself, the kind of the lizard brain sending out little messages, say, this is this, that's that. Those are perceptions. And then some of your perceptions get more sophisticated than that. Fabrications, this, these are the way you put thoughts together. If you think of perceptions being, being either as mental images or as individual words, fabrications would be making sentences out of them, passing judgment on things, saying, I like this, I don't like that. Um, how about if we change it this way? How about if we change it that way? Your, all your opinions about things, your views, right views, wrong views, would be fabrications. Just the mind's putting things together. And then finally, consciousness would be the awareness of all these things. Now, those are the aggregates. And someone asked, you know, why would the Buddha divide things up into these five particular categories? I mean, there are lots of different ways you can analyze the functionings of the mind. Why these five? And... The best analogy I can give is when you're eating, all five are involved. You start out with the form of the body and also the form of the potential foods out there that would be food for the body. You're starting out with a feeling of pain, of hunger, and you want to replace it with a feeling of pleasure of having eaten. There are perceptions. You see something, if you're a little child crawling across the floor, you see something, what's the first thing little children do with something when they, when they encounter it? In the mouth to see, is this edible, not edible? And as we grow up, we get a little bit more sophisticated about that. And then we, then we apply it to people. Is this the kind of person I can get along with, this person I can get some advantage out of, or I can find happiness with? We have these perceptions that we apply to things. And then when you come across something, you've got to check your perceptions sometimes. You know, you've known that you've eaten things in the past that got, made you sick. Okay, does this look like something that made me sick last time? I've got to avoid that. And then fabrication, you look for something to eat. Once you found it, then the question is, suppose you get a raw potato. You can't eat a raw potato. What do you do to fix it? That too is fabrication. And then finally, consciousness is what is aware of all these things. So these are the five activities that are related to feeding. turns out that you know, in, if you think about Western philosophy as a whole, when they talk about um, questions of how we know things, the primary example they keep giving is, I look at something, and what are the processes by which I identify this particular thing? In other words, your basic activity is you as an observer or a watcher. The sense of sight is the big sense in, in Western thinking. In Indian thinking, the big, the big issue was eating. It starts with the Vedas. If we go to heaven, what are we going to eat? <laughs> 
If you run out of food, you're going to fall. This is why they had sacrifices. You send the horses up, you send the cows up, all these other things. That will be your food. And then you got the Upanishads, and they say, well, you can actually, you actually leverage your food by the way you conceive, conceive of, conceive of what you, what you are, or what, what, what you know, what the ultimate principle of the universe is. If you have the right conception, that cre creates an infinite amount of food. But again, food is the major analogy. The act of feeding is the major analogy. And so here's the Buddha coming along saying, hey, no, feeding is suffering when you cling to it. So you can see how radical his switch is. So that, that gets us to the word clinging. The word clinging, upadana, can also mean feeding. So we tend to feed off of certain perceptions, we tend to feed off of certain feelings, feed off of certain thoughts, feed off of the sense that our body is ours. And the Buddha says, in all cases like this, we're suffering. So that's his analysis of, okay, this is what, where the stress is. It's, it's the mind's need to feed. Any questions on that? Yes? I'm almost on page. Okay, you're on, we're on page 8, where it says, this is the noble truth of stress. It's the last passage there before appropriate attention. And we're... We're talking about the first paragraph there. Yes? I'm not sure whether I'm just, uh, whether you're going to cover this, but I, I, is this um, something that we need to avoid before the five aggregates? Is that, I mean, that seems like human nature. Well, what the Buddha's going to say is, no, you have to use the five aggregates in a new way. And this, this is where the path gets interesting. Because you're going to be using the five aggregates. Think of if you weigh yourself down with the five aggregates, it's like having bricks that you put in a big sack over your shoulder and you just carry them around. And the Buddha's saying, no, let's put it down and make a path. Now, eventually, you're going to be going beyond them. I mean, nirvana is not aggregates, there's no aggregates in nirvana at all. But as you say, our identity is shaped around this because one of the ways we cling is that it's a clinging to this is me, this is mine. This is what I am. I, uh, so, you know, if, uh, an enlightened being still puts something in their mouth, ooh, this brownie tastes good, but mm -hmm. they won't cling to that. Oh, it tastes good. It mm -hmm. feels rich in my mouth, or it. Well, they, they, again, the clinging is not, not so much there they're talking about the mental feeding off of something. Is I'm going to find my happiness through in taking this in. And then an enlightened being says, okay, my body needs the food, I will eat the food. And of course they cannot help it. Taste, this tastes good, this doesn't taste good. But they're not looking for their happiness there because they found it somewhere else already. So those are still aggregates, but there's no clinging. And then eventually, when the arahant dies, the, the arahant has no need for aggregates. Well, th that's one of the questions. When, if someone, an arahant dies, do they exist? Do they not exist? Both, neither. And the Buddha says, don't ask. <laughs> because the way, they're, way people are defined is through their clinging. You, def you define yourself through what you cling to. I mean, you've seen those personal ads, right? You know, so-and-so likes long walks in the evening, sitting by fireplaces. 
on the beach. <laughs> That's how we define ourselves, by the things we hold on to. Now, the arahants are not holding on to anything. And when after they die, there's no way you can identify them, and there's, therefore there's no way you can say that they exist or don't exist, or both or neither. And the image they give is of the ocean. The ocean is immeasurable. So it's not totally going out of existence, but it's not the way, what they are, what they experience is something that we can't define. Now we define ourselves by the aggregates, whichever aggregates we feed on. Those those form our definition. But at the same time, as we feed on these things, we limit ourselves. Now we see ourselves, and this is how I gain power and gain wealth and gain happiness in life, is by amassing these things. And this is where the Buddha's analysis goes against the grain. He says, no, you learn how to give these things up. But before you totally give them up, you're going to have to use them. Yes? If I recall uh, correctly, maybe it was from yesterday, that um, aggregates could also be considered activities mm -hmm. that we do. Mm -hmm. In that regard, since um, aggregates are what we cling to, it, is it, it seems to me that we're trying to solve a problem through uh, fabricating the aggregates and um, doing those activities, but then causing ourselves problems through that process. It sounds like a feedback loop of bad stuff. Mm -hmm. The way we generally do it, yeah, we've... We're looking for happiness, we're using the aggregates, we're holding on to the aggregates to find happiness, and then we create problems. Yeah. But, the, but the Buddha says, okay, you can't just say, oh, I'm going to stop. His, his solution is, let's use the aggregates in a different way. So that they will deliver you to a point where when you can let go, okay, then, you, then, you, then you can be on them. So we will be fabricating the path. I, think, I said about the image of the raft going across the river. You take the aggregates you have, you're already talking to yourself, you're already perceiving things, you already have feelings. Let's do it in a way that gets us across. And then you let go. Yeah. So, um, you were saying you know, clinging is suffering mm -hmm. or stress, and feeding is suffering or stress. And what's the difference between clinging, clinging and feeding? From the Buddhist point of view, they're the same thing. The word is the same. Upadana is used in both cases. Mm -hmm. Yes? It takes a lot of work to develop wisdom and, or acquire wisdom and compassion for one's practice. And then one perhaps doesn't achieve the destination, but it's followed the path. Mm -hmm. And as Learned a lot, especially with the, the mind itself, the physical mind. And then the person passes away. Do, do we carry that person and compassion with it, with us? And what happens to all of that knowledge and, and work is so the habits, the habits you've developed go with you. So if you've been developing good habits, you're reborn with those good habits. And in some cases, you know, the actual memories of the things you had are not there, but, you know, the, the habits you had of acquiring knowledge and trying to put things together, that's going to continue with you. You think of the Ajans born up in northeastern Thailand. Very poor education opportunities, 
many of them came from very poor families, but they had these habits they'd built up from previous lifetimes. So they were, you know, they were honest people, they were genuine, they were very determined kinds of people, they were very wise. That those habits stuck with them. So that's why they talk about developing, working on what they call noble treasures. You have qualities of conviction, you have qualities of virtue, discernment. A curious nature is always looking for knowledge. Those go with you. So you work on developing those. Yes. In um, thinking some about the fetters, uh, are we deconstructing the sense of self that we built in the lifetime? Well, again, think of many selves. You know, there's a Margaret who goes down to the grocery store, and there's a Margaret who deals with the family, and the Margaret who deals with government officials, and you know, there's lots of different Margarets, and some of them just kind of fall by the wayside because you're not using them anymore. They kind of atrophy. Others you pull up from childhood. Then again, the way you tend to develop these these senses of self, that's their habits that continue. And so, you're, again, you're not going to be dropping your sense of self entirely when you practice. You're going to be creating, emphasizing the skillful selves that you have and trying to strengthen those. It's part of that raft that takes you across. Okay, that was the noble truth of stress. Okay, the origination of stress, the craving that makes for further becoming. Okay, the word becoming here is the act of taking on an identity in a particular world of experience. And by world of experience, this can mean just anything. It comes from they, both the identity and your sense of the world come from a desire. Um, I'll give you an example. My brother is an alcoholic. He came to visit one time. And as we're driving through Valley Center, he picked up the one place in Valley Center that's, that was selling alcohol. Now, I had never noticed this. <laughs> I had driven past it many, many times, but it was not part of my mental map, you know. But as soon as we drive, drive past Fat Ivers, he says, Jeff, can I, tomorrow can I borrow the car? He said, no. <laughs> I do know my brother. <laughs> So your experience, your sense of the world around you is going to be defined by your, by your desires, what you want out of it. I'll give you another example. Um, when I go to, live in Bangkok, I go for an alms. And in that particular area, I know all the people who come out in the morning to give alms. Now that's a part of the Bangkok world that most lay people would not know. But I need alms in the morning, so that's what I know about that area of Bangkok. Who comes out, what time they come out, that kind of thing. Because someone else might go through that area. There, um, you know, there are stores there, there are other things there. That their, their concept of that area would be defined by the fact that they are interested in something that is sold there, or they're not interested at all. Again, that becomes being blank on their, their mental map. So that's when we're talking about a world of experience. It's the world that is relevant to a particular desire. And then your identity around that desire. 
For example, tonight you may want to go for a pizza. Okay, right now, the world that's relevant to the pizza is what you can do to get the pizza and what's getting in the way of getting the pizza. <laughs> right now, you're sitting and listening to this monk talking to you, and he's getting in the way. <laughs> and you feel around in your wallet, and you say, oh, yeah, I've got the credit card. I've, I've got something that can buy the pizza, so that's part of, it, part of your world right now, relevant to the pizza. And then, okay, well, you know where the different stores are, where they sell pizza on Hawthorne or whatever. Okay, that's all the world relevant to that desire for pizza. And also the sense of you. I'm the one who's got the ability to do this, and I'm the one who will enjoy it afterwards. All of that is called becoming. So there are desires, cravings that lead to becoming. And the Buddha says basically three. Craving for sensuality, craving for becoming, and craving for non-becoming. Sensuality here is your fascination with thinking about sensual pleasures. In other words, where in the world can I find this particular pleasure? Where in the world can I find that pleasure? Um, if the raw material that's offered by the world is not what I want, how do I change it? You know, you're looking for a mate. You found somebody, and they seem kind of promising, but you say, well, look, I could change this person a little bit. <laughs> Be the person I want. And they're probably thinking the same thing about you. That's sensuality, just thinking about a particular pleasure you want and how you can attain it. And if, you don't, if it's not quite what you want, well, you can, how do I change it? Again, to go back to the pizza, you could think of all the different pizza toppings you would want, and you could sit here all afternoon and say, do I want salami or do I not want salami? Do I want pineapple? I, I personally think pineapple on a pizza is you know, ungodly. But... <laughs> But it's you know it's it's up to you. <laughs> I was just thinking about when I was in France. I was I was I was trying to use ratatouille as a, as, a, as an example for one of the Dharma teachings. And I got to a point where I said, you have the choice of putting olives or not putting olives in your ratatouille. And you should have seen the shiver. Just <laughs> so, craving for non-becoming basically means you're, you're stuck in a particular becoming and you don't like it and you want to destroy it. Like you find yourself in a particular world, a thought world, and you don't like it, you say, I've got to destroy this thought world. Well, you're actually taking on an identity of the destroyer now. So you're not getting beyond becoming. You take on a new identity in that desire for non-becoming. This creates, as you might, might imagine, some strategic problems on the path. You know, How do you navigate between craving for becoming, craving for non-becoming? We can talk about that if you like. But these three kinds of craving are what cause us to cling, and the clinging is the suffering. Notice that the suffering is an activity we do. We're not just not in the passive receiving end of the suffering, we're rather doing it, both in the craving and in the clinging. Now, the Buddha's not saying that all desire is bad. When we get to the Noble Eightfold Path, we'll discover there is a desire to develop what is skillful, the desire to abandon what is unskillful. That's part of right effort. So these, it's these specific three kinds of craving. These are the problems. Any questions there?
Yes. So the becoming is that where the fabrication comes in, where we're at creating the world or fabricating the worlds that we're at, we're also seeking. That's one of the roles of fabrication. Yeah. Yes. I I've noticed in my experience that you know, I have cravings, but there's also times when you know talk about having free choice, you know, to either you know follow it or reject it. But I've noticed in times in my own experience because um, I have certain tendencies in life that some of these some of these opportunities appear spontaneously. Uh, from the world. You know? I mean, I, your pizza example, I may be somewhere where there's no pizza at all, but somebody's walking down the street and says, I've got this leftover pizza, do you want it? I mean, that's sort of an extreme example, but I've had these things happen to me that I have uh, a particular propensity for, you know, certain topics, you know, and, and out of the blue, I meet someone who, you know, I, I'm, in a, I'm in an area that's is completely devoid of any of that sort of uh, environment, but this person or this event or something appears like like it's the things I'm attracted to. So, like again, it's, am I attracting these things to me? That, it's that, past karma. Okay, that's what that's where that comes from. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, which bucket does it fall when you have something that? you like, but you are avoiding it. It's, it's, it's a sort of a latent craving. It's something that you know you would like mm-hmm. from past experience, but you've been avoiding it. Um, okay, you've got two different committee members arguing. <laughs> There's the one who, who says, okay, there are drawbacks to this, and the other one who says, I like this. And a lot of, a lot of things we engage in in life are like that. There's kind of a Attraction, repulsion. Goes on. That's still under becoming. Oh yeah, yeah. You've got two becomings fighting. Because mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons which we make ourselves suffer—not just the act of becoming, but several different becomings coming up, and they're they're incompatible, based on incompatible desires. Yes. Um, so I know um, with there there's skillful. Um, becoming with the path. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, um, is there any uh, skillful non-becoming, or would that just be abandoning of the unskillful and the not identifying? Okay, what you want would be to create a different kind of becoming in its place to begin with, mm-hmm. and that's what we're doing when we get into states of concentration. Mm-hmm. It's a state of becoming. It's a good state of becoming. Then, when you when you can find that you can develop a desire for that, that makes it easier to say no to unskillful becomings. Because it's, it's, it's kind of like walking a tightrope between desire for becoming and desire for non-becoming. You're going to go back and forth, back and forth. Finally, the path will deliver you to a point where you can drop both sides. But until you get to that point, you're going to be leaning one direction or the other. So. Once you've hit the becoming, then it's 
Once you hit the becoming, and there's, once once there's once there's clinging, clinging comes. Clinging will then lead to becoming. The clinging already there. The, there's dukkha already there. Which means that there will, since there is becoming on the path, there will be some stress on the path. Even something simple as sitting with your eyes closed and meditating, there's stress, right? It's not totally easeful. But you've learned how to manipulate it so it's less painful, less stressful than a lot of other things in life. Yes? So I'm trying to understand this tradition um, when you're uh, trying to um, become a destroyer, trying to destroy the situation, right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you have a wish of, uh, I want to be liberated, I don't want to be returning to my identity, mm-hmm. right? Is it the same as trying to destroy your identity? Again, at that particular wish, the Buddha encourages it. He says it's going to be a painful wish because there is a sense of you know craving for non-becoming in there. But it's when he says, develop it. I want liberation. I want to be be beyond the state where I am at. So, like, how not how not to cross this line towards the destroyer who just wants to destroy the story? Okay, but still, it's a more subtle non-becoming. But the Buddha actually encourages it. He calls it a pain not of the flesh. He says it's better to suffer that kind of pain than it is to say suffer the pain of, I'm just really, really disappointed that things are not working out the way they are, the way I want them to be. At least you raises your sights. Okay, there's a, there's a goal down there that's something I want that's better than this. Just that realization, it will be a painful realization, but he says, encourage it. You know, it's like becoming a, you know, playing the piano. You, know, you listen to yourself and say, this is miserable. <laughs> I want to be a much better piano player than this, right? And what do you do? Okay, that forces you to practice more. And you become a better p- piano player. Yes. Disenchantment and non-becoming are not quite the same thing, but they're close. Disenchantment is when you finally solve the, the problem of craving either becoming or non-becoming. It's just, I, I've had enough. But there's a long spread in Think of it as a process of growing up. <laughs> well, think about the things you used to play with when you were a little kid. And if you got them out or play with them now, ah, that's not nearly as interesting as they were. But again, it's the process of seeing it. But I, you know, where I thought I could find some pleasure, it's not really there. And should I? Maybe you know, I'm actually better off, and I'm not lying to myself anymore about the pleasure I thought I was finding in those things. Look at it that way. Mm-hmm. So I'm just trying to think of an example and see if I'm kind of understanding this correctly. So um, I work with an injured worker who um, lost 
part of his face and his skull in an accident. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting because he told me that he didn't, um, he, when he was in the hospital, which he was in the hospital for uh, six months, a long time, he didn't know that he had lost his face mm -hmm. or his skull until he saw a mirror mm -hmm. like four months after that injury. Mm -hmm. and, and that was sort of the moment that the becoming, the clinging happened. Until then, he didn't have this feeling of lo loss because he hadn't seen himself. And so, I guess, is that an element that, that part of the clinging, that there has to be awareness to have becoming? Well, he, he was he was operating with one state of becoming in his mind, and then when when he saw the mirror, he realized, oh, it's, I don't have that anymore. And it was the it was it was the loss of the original becoming, that was what was really painful there. Uh -huh. And then the, and then you are sort of suggesting that, that it's that you that it's sort of um, it's, the focus is on action, right action, <laughs> rather than anything to do with becoming. Well, becoming. Leads to actions, and actions lead to becoming. They have, they have, they, they influence, influence each other this way. Now the question is, when you see, okay, like in his case, he's like, oh my gosh, I've lost this, and that that really it strikes a real blow to a sense of self, the, the identity that he had built around having a body that looked a particular way, and having to accept, okay, now my body doesn't look that way anymore. That's going to take a lot of adjustment. Yeah. And so, you know, if there are people around who can help with that to help make the process easier, that'll make that'll sort of help minimize the amount of pain as it goes through it. But it's going to be a lot of pain, mental pain, as he adjusts. But it's replacing one state of becoming. Okay, this is what I've got now. This is the raw material I have to work with now. It's much more limited than I had before. And learning how to live with those limitations. And then, but then again, think about that comment that Ajahn Mahabhu made to the elderly woman that I mentioned last night. Okay, you've still got some goodness that you can get out of this body. Where, you know, where, 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 is, that, where is that goodness? Focus on that. Oops. Craig? I think um, one of my habitual responses to dissatisfaction is to think about sort of, well, what mistakes did I make leading up to this? And what are the dynamics that other people are operating under that kind of led to this? And sort of like Learning, using it as a learning opportunity. It sounds like you just said earlier that it's actually a good idea to use that dissatisfaction to think about, well, I'd like to actually be done with this whole mess and just think more about getting toward enlightenment and kind of figuring out the human dynamics. Wait, wait a minute. No, no, you're, you're missing a few steps. <laughs> you say, okay, if I want to get out of this mess, I can't just jump out of the mess. I've got to, I've got to work through the skills that I need. I've obviously bungled this particular situation. How can I approach it more skillfully? Because then when you approach that with it, that, that kind of question, how do I do this more skillfully, that's going to transfer over to your meditation. The willingness to say, oh, I'm going to sit down and figure this out. Okay. So it's not, we're not just trying to develop the like, uh, wholesome desire for enlightenment. We're actually still building the skills based right. on you, 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 take, you take that desire and you say, okay, now I've got to focus it back on the skills. Which is, I wish I, what I'd said to that man last night who talked about the absolute and the relative. Because so many people want to jump over their relative problems and go straight to the absolute. You can't get there that way. You've got to work through the actual problems you're facing. 
even though there's a point where those problems will not be problems. Right. The fact that you're willing to take them on and try to figure them out, that's going to be a good habit. Yes? Um, to follow those uh, a little further, I, I'm reminded of a, an image I saw once of a person standing in a cage that just had bars in the front, three outside, question down a little bit. Well, it's not very clear to me, either, but what I'm trying to say is that sometimes I know my habit. I know my story, and I'm ready to let go of that story. But I, I don't always see one view. I see many views. I see many directions. Um, and I can go for a little while. It doesn't really feel all that good, but sometimes you don't feel good until you get there. You know? This, this is when it's good to talk it over with somebody that you trust. It's someone who's had this particular problem before. How did you deal with it? So that you're not having to reinvent the Dharma wheel all the time. That's the best thing. Okay, it's you, you're, it's a series of questions you ask yourself. Okay, where is the stress here? What am I doing to cause the stress? Think of the, the questioning is the, the the doing there, and then you're looking around to see how do I answer this particular issue. As long as you've got the right questions in mind, you're heading in the right direction. As when when we get into appropriate attention, if we get there this afternoon, um, 
th- there are a lot of wrong questions you're going to ask yourself. Who am I? What am I? What have I been in the past? What am I going to be in the future? Those sort of things. And some people will tell you that the question, who am I, is the big spiritual question. And the Buddha says, don't go there. Just look at what you're doing right now and what you're, where, where is the stress in what you're doing. Can you do it in such a way that you're not causing stress? And again, it's, it's the activity of your mind talking to itself, saying, you should do this, you should not do this. And say, okay, what, what are the assumptions behind my mental conversation? And that, that's how that's how right doing, beca- right right view becomes becomes a doing, because it, it focuses your activities in a particular way. In the story about the, the one actor, mm-hmm. who was, uh, I guess it ended up that he was going to go to the hell of laughter. Or mm-hmm. like that, so. yeah, if he stuck, if he continued to be an actor, yeah. Because he's looking for his happiness in the. Well, he's making his livelihood off of, you know, aggravating greed, aversion, and delusion in his audience and in himself. So, of course, those qualities are going to develop. This is why you don't see, you know, Hollywood actors palling around with Theravada monks. Okay. Okay. The cessation of suffering is the renunci- is, is the remainderless fading cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, release, and letting go of that craving. Two words in there I think are interesting. One is release. You are actually releasing your craving instead of holding on to your craving. You let it go. And this is one of the images that you run into again and again and again in the Pali Canon. The reason that fire is stuck on its fuel is because it's holding on to the fuel. The fuel doesn't hold on to the fire, it's the fire that's holding on, therefore it's stuck. If the fuel lets go, if the fire lets go, then it is freed. You might think of it, you've probably heard of that the story of the monkey trap, where you take a coconut and you put something, there's a hole that's just big enough for the monkey to stick its hand in, and then there's something in, inside the coconut that the monkey likes, and as soon as it grabs it, it can't get out. Now, all it would have to do would be let go of the thing in the coconut, and it would be out. But it will not let go. That's basically what we do. We hold on to our cravings, and we won't let them go. And then finally, the letting go here, the word letting go here can also mean letting go without any sense of nostalgia. You let go, and you say, I've had enough. I don't really need this ever again. It's that... Complete a cut. And then finally, the path to that cessation is the eightfold path. Right view, right resolve, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. I didn't include in here an analysis of these factors, but under right effort, there is the factor of generating desire. We talked about that. There are desires that are part of the path. And those desires will become the kernel for your state of concentration, they become the kernel for this whatever sense of identity you, you develop as someone who's on the path. Which is why there's a certain amount of becoming involved in taking on the path. And there'll be a certain amount of clinging. But it's clinging and, and desire with a purpose. More skillful. Questions on that?
Yes. Those three, those three kinds. Yeah. Okay. It's of the three. Of the three, the Buddha says there is a role for for becoming and not becoming in the path. Sensuality, no. No, no. Sensuality is your fascination with thinking about and planning for sensual pleasures. Oh. <laughs> you're sitting, you know, you're thinking about the movies you want to go see. You're thinking about the food you want to eat. The things that you can sit and fascinate, and you're fascinated with thinking about these things for you know for long periods of time. That's what leaves it, makes us hooked on the sensual pleasures. We really enjoy thinking about them, fascinating, planning for them, fantasizing. But then you get okay. I mean, there are certain pleasures. There are certain pleasures that, when you engage in them, are not going to have a bad effect on the mind. There are certain pleasures that will have a bad effect on some people, but not on other people. And then there are certain pleasures that will have a bad effect no matter who. We're talking about sensual pleasures, okay? The ones that have no bad effect, you go out to nature, you enjoy the beauties of nature, no big problem. The pleasure of being in a harmonious group of people, no big problem. That's in the middle category. <laughs> And, this, and you've got to be really honest with yourself. When I indulge with this kind of pleasure, what effect does it have on my mind? And the Buddha says he does, he does not say all sensual pleasures are bad, but it's this activity of the mind that's constantly looking for its satisfaction out of thinking and planning and, you know, planning a meal. Okay, if you sat here for the rest of the afternoon thinking about tomorrow's meal, okay? So, okay, maybe it's not all that bad, but I could have been doing, I could have been doing better things with my mind. Than planning something. Than planning a meal. Mm-hmm. Than planning something that would be a benefit. Planning something that would be a benefit. A potluck takes five minutes to plan, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Because I keep thinking, I, I, you know, you know, I keep thinking of you know the, the the cuisines of the world that are really ha- highly developed and very very sophisticated. A lot of them came from societies in which you had a lot of harems, women sitting around with a lot of time on their hands, and they just got involved in making it more and more and more and more and more elaborate. And I'm not blaming women. If you, it's if you had men in the same situation, they do the same thing. But you have a lot of people, a lot of free time, and this is what they do. I, I, I guess 
that would be part of the But the, the actual the actual experience of the pleasure is not so much the problem. It's it's some pleasures, as I said, will involve unskillful states of mind or develop unskillful states of mind. You got to learn how to avoid them. Potlucks are, you know. Yeah. This is why we have this is why we have concentration practice. Yeah, I'm liable to go into the habits of, of what's easier, which is the negative stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 So for me It's a step up. Yeah. Okay, but then there's a next step up beyond that. So if you could sit here and get into jhana for the next hour, then you would say, ah, I don't I don't need you know, potluck takes five minutes to plan. Okay. You don't need you don't need my permission. <laughs> Yeah, if that's the only choice you're presenting yourself with, okay, that would be the obvious thing. If something that's generous, something you're providing, something good for other people, rather than to sit around thinking about negative things. And so, the, so it's a step up. And, and the other thing besides doing that with the alternative, I'm just, I'm just trying to be aware of an alternative besides that as well mm-hmm. that you're, you're speaking to. Yeah, which is that you can you try to be with your breath in a way that feels really, really good in the present moment. Again, you don't. You don't have to ask for my permission. The Buddha is asking. Okay, the idea of planning for potluck—it's nice. You're generous. You're thinking about other people, what you can provide other people with. That's better than thinking, you know, miserable thoughts about miserable situations. But after all, I say, okay, isn't there something better than potlucks? And that's when you're ready for. Saying my mind could settle down, just be content to be in the present moment, breathing in, breathing out. Well, at the beginning, you're thinking about making the breath nice and breathing in a way that okay feels good. And what can I? Where do I focus in the body? And how do I play with the breath energy? And trying to get interested in the fact that your body has breath energy. And how do I breathe in a way that strengthens my lungs? How do I breathe in a way that strengthens in different parts of my body that are weak? That can be interesting. And eventually you let go of that too. But we're talking about steps up. Yeah. And I remember you were saying um, you want to give the mind something to do. Right. You have a place to come back to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You had a question? So, but just to 
between being a foodie and being, you know, kind of um, really focused on making very delicious food versus making food for your family or for a potluck. It's nourishing for the body, and it's an, it's it's um, pleasurable to make it because you're, it's a generous act. But it's not you're not sort of hyper focusing on the sensual experience of eating. Right. So, right. And you put some thought into making it pleasant for the people. But it always struck me that it doesn't take that much to plan a good meal. <laughs> yes, in fact. Um, so it, it, it seems to me that nature is, is always trying to create itself. So the cell and the tree is, is being reborn so many years, it has to recreate itself. And life has to recreate itself. That's the drive of nature. So how do we separate the drive for nature and the responsibility that maybe some of us feel to perpetuate the future, perpetuate life, as opposed to like, wanting you know, central lust activity? Okay. Um, the choice is actually between wanting to perpetuate nature and saying, I've had enough of this, I want to get out. You know, awakening is not necessarily a natural activity. <laughs> We're going against a lot of st- strongly ingrained habits. But there's a part of the mind that says, look, I've been doing this over and over and over and over and over again, and it just keeps going around and around and around. Um, and the question is, when do you feel you've had enough? This, this is fascinating. I really empathize with the potluck lady. (laughs) (laughs) And this may be, I'm trying to be clever here, but I thought about this a lot because I spend a lot of time windsurfing. And I've watched why why windsurfing, and and I've realized it actually, it's kind of become part of my practice because I see the mind start babbling as I'm out on the wave. And so it's kind of like, I mean, it's skillful in the sense of being, it's giving me physical activity. I'm out in the sunshine. I'm out in nature, as I know nature. Uh, and I've, I've decided kind of to justify it as what is happening to this mind. When I, and there's all kinds of analogies about up and down. There's tons of analogies, but I'm trying I'm hoping now, and maybe just a delusion, I mean delusion, but that when I am engaged in hiking in the woods or windsurfing, that I'm, wa- I'm watching the mind. Mm-hmm. And what, what, for me, the ultimate, the ultimate goal is freedom mm-hmm. from the damn mind. Mm-hmm. What the mind, the mind has, you know, for, for all the reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, well, if you can take that attitude of, okay, I've become a better and better and better windsurfer. I'm becoming more and more observant from the mind. And you come back home and you say, okay, let's apply that same set of skills to just watching the mind while I'm sitting here. Then you've learned how to transfer the skills over to something that then, then you get to watch the mind even more carefully. You're, getting, you're putting your full attention on it now. Because when you're out with the windsurfing, part of you is watching the mind, part of you is watching the waves, part of you is watching you know, all the other things you have to do. And they say, now I've got to focus 100% just on my mind as it is right here. 
And you're going to need that ability because there will come a point where you can't windsurf anymore. <laughs> you know, you know, my father's way of dealing with the issues in the family always was go down to a shop, you know. And then he developed Parkinson's and we could not have him around power equipment because he started chopping off ends of his fingers and that kind of thing. And then he was really at a loss. He didn't have a place to go. So, so learn the lessons from windsurfing, but then apply them to the meditation. Yes? Okay, the, the, the only time when you're really done with these things is awakening. <laughs> no, right, right, no, no, no. Because <laughs> the, reason, the reason I say that is because at that point you will have found something that's so much better. You say, gosh, I'm so, much, I'm so glad that I you know, finally got beyond that. And it's not like... You know, sometimes you hear people say, well, it's, it's just learning how to accept the things that everything will change and you're just kind of okay with it and no big problem. That's not it at all. Awakening is really amazing. And you say, gee, why didn't I do this before? <laughs> and then you realize it was because of all the stupid things I was doing before that were getting in the way, the things I was holding on to. Okay, this is when you have to ask yourself, okay, what was it that I found appealing in that particular particular, particular pattern of behavior? And can I find a substitute? Because the path is always going to be finding substitutes up until you've got the real thing. I mean, concentration practice is a big substitute for a lot of stuff. But there are other ways of substituting. That is skillful. The rungs of the ladder—would you consider those small awakenings? They're not really awakenings, but it's just okay. I've—I've I've realized I've gone beyond this, and now I can go get to the next step. And then you have to let go of this, but you have to hold on to this before you can reach up to the next one. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. I just wonder why that wasn't, why that didn't part of the bright view when it's playing earlier in the 
Well, this, this is why right concentration was the first factor that the Buddha discovered of the path. And right concentration is mentioned, you can see it's right, mentioned right here in right view. That's part of the path. He first has to say, okay, this is the problem, this is the cause, the cause can be abandoned, and this is how you do it. It's like a doctor approaching a disease. Okay, a cure is possible. One might say, now the cure is possible, this is how it's done. And so out the Four Noble Truths, the ones that should grab your attention are how it's done. Okay, finally. Okay. The very last paragraph of that passage. The noble truth of stress is to be comprehended. And there's another place where the Buddha defines comprehension as understanding something so thoroughly there is no longer any passion, aversion, or delusion around it. We don't know or think that we're passionate for our suffering, but we are. Because we are passionate for our clingings. The things we cling to are things that we really want to keep doing. Until you see, okay, I'm causing myself a lot of stress, a lot of suffering by doing this. That's when you're ready to think about letting go. The noble truth of the origination of the stress is to be abandoned. Now, notice you abandon the cause; you don't abandon the suffering. You have to abandon. You have to find the cause and, and let go of that. The cessation is to be realized, and the path is something to be developed. Now, there are several other points to be made here. Um, including there should have been a period at the end of that developed. Um, one is, okay, you, you, moments of mindfulness and concentration come. You don't just watch them come and go and think that that's, that's discernment or insight. They come and they go. You've got to bring them back. In other words, it's something that you really want to work on developing. You don't just let them come and go. Secondly, in each of these cases... You notice that there's this, the dispassion for craving is the cessation of stress. Okay, you're going to have to develop dispassion for stress itself or suffering, its cause. And eventually you develop dispassion for the path. But in, in order to get there, first you have to be passionate for the path. And if, you're going to, if it's going to develop, you have to really want to work on it. It's not going to develop on its own. Which means there will be some passion, there will be, as I said, there will be some clinging, there will be some stress around doing the path, but it's for a purpose. It's the way do we get over. And it's in that context of developing dispassion for stress and its origination. That's where the three characteristics come in, although the Buddha doesn't call them three characteristics, he calls them three different perceptions. You apply the perception of inconstancy to things that you used to like. Because you begin to realize, okay, this is not what I thought it was. You're looking for the drawbacks of the things that you've, in the past, you found alluring. So you have to see the allure, and you also have to see the drawbacks. It's when it's, that's when we bring in those three three perceptions: inconstant, stressful, not self. For the things that we cling to, for the things that we crave, and also things that would pull us off the path. It's only when the path is fully developed that then you then you turn on and look at the path itself in terms of those perceptions. So there's stages in how you apply those perceptions.
questions on those duties. Notice how important it is that we divide these things up into these four categories. The four categories basically come from what is skillful to do gives good results. What is unskillful to do is going to give bad results. That's why we get four noble truths. I heard a teacher one time saying that the Buddha, when he taught the four noble truths, was coming from a non-dual perspective. Four is not non-dual. <laughs> In fact, it's a dual duality. I mean, it's, it's, it's two times two. It's, he's saying there are four ways you can, four categories you can divide your experience up to. Once you know the categories, then you know this is the duty that I apply to this category and that category. There are things to be done. But it comes again from that sense of the, the basic question of what is skillful, what is unskillful. So applied specifically to the issue of how the mind is causing stress, how it can stop causing stress. The big difference between mundane right view and transcendent right view is that mundane right view is the kind of view that is going to lead to more becoming, and therefore it talks about beings and worlds, identities in worlds. Whereas in the Four Noble Truths, you see those categories are not mentioned. It's just stress, its cause, the path, its cessation. In other words, we're not thinking about who's doing this or where it's happening. We're just thinking, looking, at, looking at these things as they're occurring, as immediate experiences, without applying the per perception of being or the perception of world on top of that. Questions? Carrot cake. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, and I, I'm doing this thinking, you know, I'm watching my mind, I'm watching my, you know, I'm going to explore all this, and it's, you know, I can, uh, I'm going to learn out all this stuff, and blah, 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 but I'm actually not letting go of the wanting a piece of carrot cake. And that's actually, I mean, I can see, <laughs> I, was, I was suffering around that without recognizing it. I was really kidding myself that. You know, I'm, I'm walking the path. The five-mile path, yes. But in that case, you have to you have to replace it with something else. Because otherwise the mind will say, what's the most interesting thing on my mental horizon right now? Mm, the carrot cake. And they go back. Well, I'm wondering if this would be uh, a skillful way to put my attention. I'm not sure. And that would be, so, so I'm sitting on the couch and I'm thinking, yeah, I'm going to this carrot cake. And I'm going to make it a challenge for me to get. So there I go reach, I clean, I get it, blah, blah, blah. Rather than doing that, would it be appropriate attention to... Uh, um, bring to mind the satisfaction of, of an experience such as, because this is quite um, impactful to me. Uh, I grew up in Portland, Oregon. There was always an area in Portland I never wanted to live in. I, I didn't want to identify with that as a person who lived in this area of town. And a style of home. I didn't, I, 
connected and identify as, and I wasn't aware of how strong this was. Um, and it came to circumstances happened that uh, we thought we were going to have a new home built. And so we rented a place while, while in order to fund the home, the new home. And we ended up renting a place from a friend who happened to live in the neighborhood I never wanted to live in. And then the building fell through, so we ended up, the new home fell through. We ended up purchasing the house that in the area that I never wanted to live in, and it's a style house I never wanted to live in. Um, and I, but I, I was like, okay, do what you have to do, and so we started working on the house and making our own, and then I finally realized, like overnight, that I really like this house, and I like the neighborhood, and it, it suddenly dawned on me after a couple of years that this is where I never wanted to live, this is the style of home I never wanted to be in, and yet this house works better for me than any home I've ever lived in. And I, I realized when, when I, that, um, that identity, that aversion had just dropped. And so not wanting, same as wanting, want, wanting a particular identity, so not needing that particular identity, it felt so good to recognize that that was gone. Um, and that was, uh, and so I bring that up every once in a while to remind myself that all those years of wanting a particular identity, I can think about ways that I suffered over that growing up for many, many years. And now I don't have that anymore. So not wanting that. If I could have brought that up in my mind for something as simple as wanting a piece of carrot cake, I'm thinking that that would have helped me. Just like, oh, don't, don't forget, it's this wanting that's making you suffer. Drop the wanting. Try, try and make it simpler than that. Just okay. I've got the. T I have the time. I could walk for five miles for a piece of carrot cake. Isn't there a better use of my time? Yeah, I could have gotten the laundry done. <laughs> or at least something. Right. Yeah. And again, that's the whole idea of becoming. You're taking on an identity in that particular world where carrot cake is the ideal thing <laughs> to get out of the world. And you say. There must be better worlds than this. <laughs> I mean, just walking down to the park mm -hmm. is a better world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So just simply putting my attention on just dropping the wanting and doing something that even like walk, working in the garden. You just say, there's, there's, a, there's a better identity than this. There's a better world than this. Mm. Carrot cake world. Carrot cake, Mary. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I felt like I was not really very attached to it, but I was just kidding myself. If you could walk five miles. <laughs> yeah. Question? Okay, just bring, as she said, bring to mind some other times when you were really fast, fastened on a particular idea, and then when you came to your senses, you realized that it was, so, it was, you know, I created a lot of unnecessary suffering around it. Maybe that's happening here. In other words, step back a little bit. The committee member that has your best interests in mind. 
Then you have to learn how to identify those. The what? Yeah, because you know, thinking about that, what they call the biome, biome. How do you, how do you pronounce that? The biome and all those. You know, John Lee has a really great talk. It's in the book um, Inner Strength, where he talks about it's his version of the committee is you've got you've got all these germs in your blood vessels and in your stomach. They may have ideas. <laughs> and especially the ones that go through the, you know, the blood vessels go through the brain, they may drop a few ideas in your brain as they go past. And so when something comes into your mind, say, is this, is this me thinking or is this the germs thinking? <laughs> and then on top of that, there are all the, you know, the individual, in, invisible spirits hanging around you who've got karmic issues with you. They might slip a few ideas. And so when something comes into your mind like that, say, is this really me thinking? If it's me thinking, this would actually be something that would be for my long-term welfare and happiness. And if it's not for my long-term welfare and happiness, just say it's somebody else. That's one way you sort out the committee members. Okay. There's something over here. Okay, it's two. It's time for us to break. So we've got 20 minutes for a break, and then we come back. And we'll get to work on the rest of the <laughs> readings.